We've all heard the phrase, practice makes perfect before, but that isn't really true. See, practice can make perfect, but it's gotta be the right kind of practice. At One Huddle, we call it purposeful, deliberate practice. And knowing how to practice the right way, it isn't always easy. It's why most don't do it. So what makes practice effective? Well, today's guest is someone who knows a little bit about practice. Well, the practicing mind to me is about learning to be in the process and enjoy the process. If your practice is gonna be effective, it's gotta be purposeful. There's gotta be a reason behind it. It's also gotta be deliberate, which means you gotta have feedback. It's gotta actually develop a skill. Vague overall improvement is the enemy of deliberate practice. It's gotta get you out of your comfort zone. And today's bringing in guest is an expert on how we can align our minds and our bodies to stay in the moment so we're getting the most out of what we do. Tom Sterner is the founder and CEO of the Practicing Mind Institute. He's also the author of a popular book that I picked up years ago and has been on my desk called The Practicing Mind, Developing Focus and Discipline in Your Life, Master Any Skill, or Challenge by Learning to Love the Process. Prior to founding the Practicing Mind Institute, Tom served as the chief concert piano technician for a major performing arts center, preparing instruments for the most demanding performances. During his 25-year tenure, he personally worked for industry giants like, I don't know, Pavarotti, Fleetwood Mac, Ray Charles, Tony Bennett. Did you hear any of those names before? When I sat down with Tom, we talked about a whole bunch of stuff, including how we can make better goals and how we can practice to our fullest potential. The problem that we have when we make goals without accurate data is that we make assumptions on our performance based on false information. We also talked about what it really means to operate at our highest levels. That's when you're in the present moment of doing something and you're totally engrossed in that, you're operating at your highest performance level and you don't even really notice it because uh, you know, you're not attached to this point out here. When you set a goal and you attach yourself to this moment when you achieve it, then you put yourself at war with the process of achieving it. And that's, that's kind of a caveat. This is an episode you definitely aren't gonna wanna miss. So in the words of the seven time national championship head football coach of the University of Alabama, Nick Saban, it's all about the process. Now, let's bring it in. I listened to another podcast that you were on, Tom, and mentioned that you sold everything you had to write a practicing mind. Yeah, so as I, an entrepreneur, as an entrepreneur, like, why'd you do that? Well, um, I realized that the business model that I had when I was younger just wasn't a very good one. In other words, I, when I started the uh, service business, I was work for a dollar to make a dollar. And when I started it, I thought, well, the problem is I don't have enough clients. If I just had enough clients, then I would be busy all the time and I'd be making you know, a lot of money. And let's just say that was a thousand clients in my database is what I needed to stay busy at my optimum workload. Well, once I passed that, I couldn't get to the money. I mean, you know, and then I had 2000 people, then 3000 people, and I wasn't making any more money. All I, I was working 70 hours a week. And I said, this is not a good model. I didn't have anybody in my family that was a business person. So I had no real uh, mentor uh, or modeling there to look at. So then I decided I need something where um, it can grow, it's scalable. And it, for example, I started a publishing company to publish the practicing mind. I self-published it at first and it got taken over by a major publisher. But 
because my thinking was, well, if if Amazon says well, we need another 500 books, I don't have to write each book before I send it to them. I just send them a couple of boxes, you know, it's just they can get as big as it wants. And that's what happened. So uh, it was a better it, it was uh, it was just basically a survival thing um, and looking at how can I make more money but work less. So that was uh, was really the impetus that started it. I have to say, it didn't start out. I mean, I was, it, there's a chapter in my second book called, uh, in Fully Engaged called uh, Set Your Goals with Accurate Data. And I did not have any accurate data. I thought, well, geez, I write the book. Um, I, when I sold everything I had, I mean, I was cash rich because I sold two business properties, $100,000 in tooling, a client base. And I just launched into publishing this book and producing the audio version in the studio and all of that. Um, and I'm thinking in my head, well, you know, there's hundreds of millions of people on the internet. I start up a website. I put the book out there and sit back and watch the money roll in. And um, well, nobody knew who I was. They didn't know what the book was about. And I found I was making about $17 a week in book sales and hemorrhaging cash. And um, so um, things did turn around. And I think it's a very important uh, point to make because if somebody had said to me, the problem that we have when we make goals without accurate data is that we make assumptions on our performance based on false information. So an analogy that I give people is if I said, uh, I want to lose 30 pounds, that ought to take me five days. Well, we all, then we all know that's ridiculous, you know, but if you didn't know that was ridiculous, what would happen? You know, you start out on the goal, you're dieting, you're exercising, and you're getting on the scale and you're going, this isn't happening. I must not be very good at this. And you start stressing out and your confidence goes down and you start doubting yourself. If someone had said to me, uh, Tom, it's going to take about two years for this thing to manifest and for you to get to a point where you're, um, you know, you're comfortable financially, I, you know, in th six months, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. I thought, well, it's only been six months. I'm not really supposed to be there for another year and a half. And that's why it's so important to have uh, as much information as you can, but also to accept that you may not be able to have all the information when you start because the information just isn't available until you get further into the process. Tom, um, your, your book is one of the books I can't lend to anybody anymore because I've written all over the place on it and marked it up and you know obliterated it in a lot of ways. But for everybody listening, what is the practicing mind? What does it mean? Well, the practicing mind to me is about learning to be in the process and enjoy the process. So, for example, people say, well, is the practicing mind uh, mindfulness? And my, my response to that is mindfulness is in the practicing mind, but the practicing mind is not mindfulness because the practicing mind is about learning to enjoy the process of achieving whatever you're, it is that you're achieving. There are two different things. That does encompass mindfulness, but mindfulness is just being mindful. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're enjoying. Learning to become mindful is a skill. So as you develop that, any skill, everything we do is a skill, whether it's running a business, expanding a business, being in a relationship, from the time we're born, we're learning skills. We're learning how to walk, how to button our shirt. It just goes through our whole life. And if you can learn how to enjoy the process of learning the skill and having a mind that is totally present in that process, you move at the fastest pace. You don't experience the stress. 
and you have access to all of your cognitive um, abilities and your decision making. And the whole experience is one that's more blissful and so much less stressful. And we all we know this from sports psychology and peak performance and neuroscience that when you're in the process, when you're in the present moment of doing something and you're totally engrossed in that, you're operating at your highest performance level and you don't even really notice it because uh, you know, you're not attached to this point out here. When you set a goal and you attach yourself to this moment when you achieve it, then you put yourself at war with the process of achieving it. And that's, that's kind of the caveat there. And it's the, the spin that has to happen. Kind of like what you talked about when, when we're practicing correctly, we're unaware, I think is what you said, right? Right, right. When you're practicing correctly, there is no sense of time. Um, your mind is totally absorbed in now in what it's doing, which means that all of your energy, all of your thought energy, all of your cognitive um, energy is going into fulfilling this process. So you are operating at your highest level um, and you don't have this sense of I'm not where I'm I'm not where I want to be because, you know, you are where you want to be. And so the stress really drops away to where the documentation is there. The science is there when you're in the present moment and you are um, working at that level, you are working at the highest level that you can possibly do. There is nothing else. That is the highest level that we can work at. And it's not something that's debatable. So um, not based on the science. So it's learning to understand what it feels like to be in the present moments. There's a real big difference. Most of us are led around by our thoughts during the day and we don't even know it because we're, we're living as they say, you know, neuroscientists saying about 95% of our day, we're basically living on programs. So <clears throat> things are happening all around us. And our subconscious mind is basically like a hard drive. It's going to the hard drive and saying, what is our reaction to this visual cue or to this verbal cue? What is our reaction to that? And then it plays it out. And you're in that uh, behavior. You don't even know you're in it because it happens so quickly. And an example I gave to somebody one time that I've used is I was having a client session with somebody and, and he said, I don't believe that. And, um, and I said, well, just shut up until I finish my sentence. And he, you know, he reacted and I said, you see, like that was just a reaction. There was no cognitive thinking about, I'm not gonna let this guy touch my inner peace. I, you know, um, I'm gonna think about this. How do I wanna react? I said, it just happens like that. And I said, and this stuff is going on all day long and we're not in control of it. So one of the things that I work on with people is getting them to see what it feels like to be the observer of the thought and not in the thought. They're two different places and it's, it take, it's a skill. That's all it is, it's a skill. And it takes training and not a whole lot of training, you know, but it does take training. And then with any skill, it's repeat the mechanics you know, and do it with non-judgment. Um, and uh, then <laughs> learning the skill as efficiently as you can is a skill itself. So, um, you know, so to me, it's learning to understand I'm not my thoughts. I have thoughts. Uh, some of them I intend because I have to problem solve, but most of the thoughts that I have during the day are thoughts that my mind sets off without my permission and even my awareness. Is, the, is there a difference between practice and learning? Well, yes, there is because practice is intentional. Um, you know, in, in, if for the, in the context of this discussion, you know, when we practice, practice to me is um, the intentional repetition of a specific task 
with a conscious effort to learn something and to accomplish something. Learning something, you, you can grow up in a house where everybody's screaming at each other and you'll just learn that. I mean, that's just, you know, that's the behavior. You can be around people that have, um, that are never in the present moment, that are always attached to, um, to the goal. And you learn that, um, especially you learn that without being aware that you're learning it. And then it becomes a program that just plays itself. And then now you're stuck in that loop. So practicing has a consciousness to it and a very, um, very intentional idea of what am I trying to accomplish? The, uh, we deal with a lot of HR leaders and talent leaders across the, across the country who um, you know, struggle every day with how do you get the most out of people and we live in a, in an environment at times where struggle in the hard stuff is not always easy to, but might be critical to maybe effective practice or getting the most out of others. How, how do you, how do you think about struggle? And in, you know, you talk about being in the present moment, but sometimes being in that moment is, you know, the practice that you're going through is tough. I can imagine even learning and learning, a, learning a sport or learning a skill. How do you think about struggle in the equation? Well, struggle is an interesting word because we um, we attach the judgment to it. It's just a feeling. We attach the judgment of I, it's a bad thing. But what is struggle really telling you? Well, what it's telling you is that <clears throat> you're in the process of learning a skill and you haven't mastered it. That's that's all it's telling you. It's just data. And but uh, so like if you know an example I've used is if you go to learn say. Um, a, a musical instrument and you go on the very first day of the thing and you don't know anything about music and the teacher shows you a piece of sheet music and it's got notes on staff lines and they're you got this keyboard in front of you and you don't know any of it where are you in that, in that moment you you're struggling is what you why because you are up against your your skill threshold that's where you are is you're up against that threshold so it's, you know when you learn something at a skill we always start from no skill and then we move along this line of mastery so in that situation, you have no skill. Well, let's jump ahead like five years. Now you're playing some classical piece or some jazz piece. How do you feel inside? You feel the same as you did on the very first day of the thing. Why? Because you're up against your threshold here. Your skill is, is always moving, but your skill always puts you, your skill level always puts you up against where your threshold is with that skill. And so when you, and then it gives you this feeling. The feeling is not a bad thing. It's just letting you know you haven't mastered this point. So, you know, you don't think there's so many things we do all day long, whether it's in our job or just walking across the room. I mean, you don't think about that. You know, you don't think about buttoning your shirt. That, but that was the skill you had to learn. And when you first started learning, it was difficult. Now you do it without thinking about it. You drive your car and you're having a conversation with somebody. You know, it's the same thing in work. Dealing with stressful situations, deal with dealing with learning a new skill or pushing forward is a skill itself. And when you learn to read, interpretation creates experience. If you interpret that feeling as um, that we're labeling a struggle, as you interpret as just information, then what you'll find is that your experience of it, because you've interpreted differently, changes. And that's one of the things that um, that can happen, by the way, if you're in the reaction. If you're in the reaction, then you're just, this is hard, this is struggling, I'm stressed out. That's being in the, re that's being in the behavior and the reaction. That's what you've told your subconscious thousands and thousands of times. When I'm doing this and I'm in this position, this is how I want you to make me feel. And it, you know, the, sense of the, the subconscious doesn't have a sense of humor. It just tries to give you what it thinks you want.
What, what do you tell? Cause I know you do a lot with coaches and, and managers and business owners. Like what do you tell to managers or leaders or coaches on, you know, how, how do you coach your people through that? To love the well, process and be okay with it. The very first thing you have to do, Sam, is you have to, you have to spend 10, 15 minutes a day on what I'm, I'm going to call thought awareness training. You know, if, if you are in your thoughts, you have no power and, you know, um, and, and you have to get out of that and what you have to see what does it feel like to be the observer of the thought because once you're the, uh, the observer of the thought now that's the, the key to the prison door now you have the opportunity to change your experience in a situation before that you don't have the opportunity because you're just a puppet of whatever thoughts your mind is producing so i would tell people that um you know, you can call it semantics. You can call it meditation. I don't care what you call it. You know, we're not looking for a religious experience here. We're just looking for an awareness that my mind thinks without my permission. And I need to get um, outside of that. So, you know, you can sit. I, I give people some files that they can use. But, the um, you know, if you sit in a comfortable position, you can also get on your knees on a pad if you want. Um what you basically want is to be in a position where you're upright, your back is upright, so you don't fall asleep, and um, your body doesn't become a distraction because it's uncomfortable. And then you close your eyes and you work on um, watching your body breathe, or you can say a short phrase, um, I am still, you know, what, you know something positive. Uh, and what will happen there? Very quickly, because many people have tried this, and this is where they fall, they fall down, is it takes I don't know, the mind gets bored with that very quickly. Um, and so what it will do is it'll just run off and start looking for a problem to solve. I mean, our mind is a problem solving machine. That's what it does. And if you don't give it a problem, it'll go looking for one. So when you say the reason you pick either watching your breath or a single phrase is because you want to give your mind, you need a point of relativity. So you want to give your mind one task to do, just one single task. So you're saying to your mind, um, we're just going to watch ourselves breathe or we're going to say this phrase. The mind gets bored in 15 seconds if it takes that long and it takes off and it starts thinking about this and that and each thought creates another thought. The next thing you know, you wake up and you're working on a report that you got to get done later in the day or you're having a conversation with someone or that annoys you or whatever. And <coughs> excuse me, it's in that moment that everything happens because you basically wake up and realize that your mind has taken control again and that it's doing what it wants, not what you've told it to do. And so what do you do then? Then you pull it back into that, um, that whatever the task, whichever task that you've chosen. And when you do that, you basically have woken up and anchored yourself in the observer of the mind. And you've also strengthened your will to be able to pull the mind back. And that's all this is. It's this repetition of doing this. And where people go wrong is they think that, well, I try to do that and I'm chasing my mind all the time. So, I mean, sometimes your mind is busy and it runs and you're stressed out. And so it's like trying to solve all these problems. Sometimes if you do it right, when you get up in the morning, then your mind is relatively still. You may find it's fairly placid and you don't feel that way. Each time that you're, it's like exercising. Each time you do that, each time you pull it back, it's a repetition. And there's, um, it's all normal, whatever your experience is. There, you can't do it wrong. And there is no bad meditators. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, this is what the experience is. But what's amazing, it's so amazing about this. And I've been meditating for about 45 years. And I've studied under different people and tried different methods is that you, you can't 
stop this from happening. You don't have to try to make it happen. It just happens on its own. You will begin to get ahead of your thoughts. You will start to notice that your mind is producing an impatient thought, that your mind is producing an anxious thought. And you'll be like, I'm not anxious. I'm, I'm having an anxious thought. My mind is producing that. And that's telling me that this circumstance is a circumstance that I've told my subconscious mind, go get this thought when I'm in this circumstance. And then you have the opportunity, and, and that's one of the things I work on, but you have a type of opportunity to reprogram that um, so that when that happens, that you, because you, you're at a fork in the road there, and the pull is very strong to go down the, the habitual behavior and the thought process that you've done so many times. And when that happens, it, it gains strength, and then you're sucked into the whole emotional content of it, and you just get farther and farther down that road. But that's the single thing. You, can, you cannot do anything if you do not, it's like the core foundation block. If you do not learn to get out of the mind and realize, I use my mind, I don't allow my mind to use me. And that's where most people are during the day. And they're so easily manipulated with visuals or something somebody says to them. Uh, and you know, they're very efficient at being anxious and fearful and impatient. They're very efficient at it because they've practiced it so much. I think you need to come up with a Zoom plugin to catch me, you know, because I can't tell you how many calls I'm on. It's the question I would throw out to you that to, just to wrap on is about since work from home, this is your book is almost more important than ever because the skills you're talking about are more important than ever because people are. I'm on calls all day long where you just know when people's eyes are checking emails and doing other <laughs> stuff around the screen and, you know, and people are going from zoom to zoom, to zoom, to zoom. And you talk about chasing your mind. I mean, I just, I just think that this is, this is more important than ever. It is. And I, um, I think that one of the things that's, you know, is happening is in our, uh, our culture today and in the world today, the media has, a connection with us 24 seven. And because of that, our mind gets an awful lot of um, momentum. You know, um, we don't, we don't know how to be still. I mean, the kids don't know how to be still everybody, you know, if you took their phone away, they go crazy. Like, you know, and you tell them, you know, you're addicted to that phone and that was engineered into the phone. They go, yeah, yeah, I know, but I don't, I don't care. Cause I like looking at my phone. I mean, they don't, it's like, you're not in control. I have done things with high schoolers where I'll say, look, we're going to, what we're going to do here is we're going to sit still for two minutes, just two minutes. I want you to shut your eyes and stop thinking. Well, what happens is at the end of it, they wake, they go, I, could, I can't believe I couldn't do it. I was in the cafeteria. I was doing it. And I said, that's right. And that means you're not in control. You're sitting there telling your mind, stop thinking. And it's saying, no, I'm going to do what I want. And you're going to go with me. And I said, and you go with it. I said, you're not in control. Do you want to live your life like that? You know, and that's why people are so easily manipulated because um, this psychology is is so well known. This is the ba this is the thing that has really changed, you know, with sports psychology and, and all of this neuroscience is that everybody knows how the mind works. And the people that want to use that to their benefit can use it and and manipulate you if you're not aware that that's you know that's actually actually happening. I mean, I've seen uh, I've seen uh, you know in golf, you know, where because I've worked a lot with athletes, you know, in golf where, you know, they've said, look, you know, if you're not in control of your mind, 
then you are just basically a puppet of whatever's going, whatever stimulus is going on outside of you. And that, and the problem, Sam, is that it feels normal because we're there all the time and we've lived that. It's a, it is a, a feeling, it doesn't, it feels like we are in control. It feels like we are making decisions when we're really not. They, it's, it's something like 95% of the time we're just playing um, programs. Uh, I did a presentation one time, it was called 5% Thinking, because that's what they say. It's only about 5% of our day are we actually consciously thinking and making decisions. The rest of the time, we're just experiencing what we've, uh, stuff coming off the hard drive. And, um, and, but it feels like we're thinking. And that's what you start to learn. You really start to learn to notice that when you begin thought awareness training and it's pointed out to you, like when I have sessions with people, they will, I just let them talk and then I'll show them. You, you see what happened there? You see, and initially they don't see it. And then they begin to understand, yes, now I do see it. I see when I'm, when I'm in my thoughts and when I'm the master of my thoughts. So, um, and of course your thoughts are your emotions. The very first thing that happens is you have a thought, that thought is translated immediately in microseconds into hormones, which create the feeling. So I usually tell people, you know, try to pay attention to your feelings because the thoughts happen so quickly. It's difficult. It's difficult to stay up with that, but you can tell I'm, I got a pain in my, you know, I got a tension in my chest or wherever tension, you know, resides in you. Like I'm feeling, I got that nervous feeling. And when you do that, when you focus from that perspective, then you have immediately taken yourself out of the, the feeling. You're watching the feeling and it's to learn to be there all the time, because when you're there, then you can track it down and go, where is this feeling coming from? Like, um, what's the worst that can happen in a situation? Uh, for example, I had a young man who had to choose between three jobs and he was angsting over these jobs. And I said to him, I said, you're, you're acting like there's one job that's perfect and the other two are terrible. It's like a game show and you don't want to pick the wrong one. I said, but if, but based on what you've described to me, this job offers this, but it doesn't offer that. This job offers that, but it doesn't offer this. I said, if, if you asked yourself, what job do you want? And he hadn't done that. I mean, he was so wrapped up in this thought process of anxiety and I don't want to make a mistake here. I don't want to choose the wrong one. And wasn't seeing it from a much more objective, like an analytical point of view. I tell people, mm -hmm. you need to learn to stop that process right after analysis, because we always have to anal analyze something before we judge it. The judging has really no value. I mean, it, the judging is always, it's a relative thing. You know, some people go, I, I cannot get in front of people and talk. And some other people can't wait to do it. It's the talking in front of people is neither. It's just talking in front of people. But this person experiences it as a horrible experience. And this person's interpretation is that it's fun. So it's to learn to be more um, analytical and then stop after that and not allow the judgment to flow. Because that's always based on past experiences and stuff like that, but usually not hard data. Thomas, this has been great. I have one. I have one final question. I have to ask you, just because during COVID, my my daughter uh, got a hold of my phone and figured out how to play music, and she's four. Her name is Nico, and she fell in love with Pavarotti for whatever reason. I don't know. Maybe it's the Italian heritage, but she fell in love with Pavarotti. And I was reading about you know your your career and working with musicians at or at the highest levels. Anything that you noticed as you looked and worked with musicians that are at the the mastery level of their skill? Well, they, you know, for one, they accept the fact that they actually they rejoice the fact that their skill development 
is an endless expansion. You know, in other words, they they don't they they never feel like and they don't want to feel like I'm as good as I'm going to get because that means they have this endless room to expand. And I, you know, would see these guys. I remember one time when I was studying jazz piano, the guy that I was studying with was very well known and extremely competent. And at the end of one of my lessons, I'm packing up my books and, and he just starts doodling around on the piano and improvising. And I, I just stopped. I said, if I could play like that, it's all I would do all day. I would just sit and listen to myself play. And he laughed and he said, you know, I said that exact same thing to my instructor. He said, but, and what he said to me was, when you can play like this, you'll want to be able to play like that guy over there. And that's what I saw over and over again. The best musicians in the world. I mean, I sat in the green room with him. I sat in the dressing room. I sat next, next to him on the piano. And it was everything from classical musicians to jazz, pop, country, all these people. And they were always like, you know, I got so much to do. I'm just not really getting, I'm not as good as I should be. You know, like they always have that, but that goes back to what I told you. They're always up against their threshold. You know, they're way better than all these other people, but their interpretation of this feeling inside is that um, I'm struggling. I want to, I want to be able to do what I can't do, you know, and that's, it's similar to a video game. You know, when you look at kids with video games, I've asked, you know, college kids, I said, what, you know, what do you do with a video game when you master it? And they go, I get rid of it. And I said, that's right. I said, you want it right at that threshold where sometimes you can beat it and sometimes you can't. I said, when it gets to where you can beat it every time, I said, there's no, there's just no reason to do it anymore. So this is what we hunger as human beings. And that goes all the way through, whether it's being better at business, being better at managing people, all those things are skills. And to be able to do that at the highest level and enjoy the experience of becoming that person. That's what the practicing mind is about. Thomas, this has been, I got five pages of notes here. Thank you for, <laughs> thank for, thank you for uh, joining and wrapping. Oh, it was my pleasure. My pleasure. You know, one really important thing Tom said that all of us need to remember is this. It's learning to understand I'm not my thoughts. I have thoughts. Uh, some of them I intend because I have to problem solve. But most of the thoughts that I have during the day are thoughts that my mind sets off without my permission and even my awareness. We all have thoughts that can keep us down or tell us we're not good enough that we'll never succeed. And it's important to know that we're not our thoughts. Like Tom said, we have thoughts. They don't define us. Our actions do. Hear that, talent leaders? Our actions do. When we're engaging in purposeful, deliberate practice, it means we're truly in the moment. We aren't interrupted by our thoughts. We're not distracted by slack because we're able to be truly present and focused on what we're doing instead of all the other chaos around us. When we feel unfocused and stressed, a lot of times it's because we're constantly dealing with that hyperactive mind. This is the enemy of great training exercises. It's the enemy of a great training program. When we learn to love the process, like Tom said, and not just focus on outcomes, then we can really start to accomplish our goals. This episode of Bring It In is brought to you by the Practicing Mind Institute. Now we talked a little bit about this in today's episode with Tom Sterner and a little bit about his best-selling book, The Practicing Mind. In his book, Tom talked about how early life is all about trial and error practice. 
If we had given up in the face of failure, repetition, and difficulty, we'd never have learned to walk or tie our shoes. So why as adults do we often give up on a goal when at first we don't succeed? In his book, he references a study of how we learn. It was prompted by his pursuit of disciplines such as music and golf. Sterner has found that we have forgotten the principles of practice. The process of picking a goal and applying steady effort to reach it. The methods that Tom Sterner teaches show that practice done properly isn't drudgery on the way to mastery, but a fulfilling process in and of itself, one that builds discipline and clarity. If you haven't picked it up, you can find The Practicing Mind anywhere and check out The Practicing Mind Institute. So thank you for joining us today, Tom. It's been great having you on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We have some amazing guests lined up in the next few months. Now, back to work.